Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. I'm so excited and pleased to introduce Dr. Todd Still. Dr. Still currently serves as the Dean of True Theological Seminary, which is affiliated with Baylor University. Is that right, Dr. Still? I mean, it's on, it's on the campus of Baylor, but is it under direct auspices of Baylor, or is True at kind of a self-standing seminary? Well, Rodney, first of all, thanks. It's a joy to be with you. And Truett is one of the 12 schools and colleges that comprise Baylor University. Okay. Uh, the Association of Theological Schools speaks of her member schools in terms of standalone or embedded. So we are a so-called embedded seminary. And how old is Truett, by the way? Truett was established in 1991. Okay. It began to offer administration um, in 93 and in 1994 began with 51 students in the First Baptist Church of Waco educational wing. Now, Dr. Still, uh, as a graduate of, uh, where did you do your undergrad? Was it Dallas Baptist? Baylor. You were at Baylor. And Baylor then, undergrad. And, and he did his doctoral work under the New Testament scholar John Barclay at Glasgow. Is that right? That's correct. And, and Dr. Still's an expert in Pauline studies. Um, he uh, has written several books. Uh, he co-wrote a book, Thinking Through Paul. It's a fantastic introduction to Paul and his ministry with Dr. Longenecker, Bruce Longenecker, who's on the university side of this uh, companion work that you've done together, and it's done really well for Zondervan. Uh, Dr. Seale's also written commentaries uh, on Philippians and Philemon, He's done a lot of work. He did his doctoral work in Thessalonian letters. We'll probably talk a little bit about the Thessalonian letters in our discussion today. Uh, Dr. Still, before coming to Truett, he was at Garner-Webb University and the Divinity School at North Carolina. And before that, he taught at Dallas Baptist University. So, Todd, I, I so appreciate your scholarship and what you've done at Truett. That, that seminary, I've got a number of friends who teach there. It, it, it does absolutely brilliant work, and you guys are producing men and women who know the Scriptures, love the Lord, they love His church, and they're coming out of your graduate programs just so prepared to serve the Lord, and they're just doing great work for the kingdom, aren't they? Rodney, they are, and thank you for your kindness and your encouragement. Uh, we have a tremendous team. And we're grateful for the support of the churches. Truett is up by and for the church. And we do want to be able to prepare students um, for the same. We talk about our mission along the lines of equipping God-called people for gospel ministry in and alongside the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we look to and lean in uh, day after day after day. So. And uh, Truett has grown so significantly under Dr. Steele's leadership. There, he's expanded the, the reach of the seminary and different campuses and different parts of, of not only in Texas, but uh, other places as well. Is that right? Throughout the United States? Yeah, so we're grateful to be able to have additional instructional sites in both Houston and San Antonio. 
And we are continuing to have conversations as to what it might look like to offer our Doctor of Ministry program in other locations. Um, and these, of course, require conversations not only with faculty colleagues, administrative colleagues, but also with our accrediting agencies. So it's a long obedience in the same direction, but you, <laughs> <laughs> you just plug away. Isn't that right? Uh, these academic institutions are like big streamlining ships, right? It takes a while to point them in a direction. Takes a lot of industry to get them going, but boy, when you have a very clear vision like Dr. Still has and what Truett's doing, it's just an amazing work. All right, so this is, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Dr. Still uh, and I are going to talk about the order of the biblical books. Now, we're going to concentrate our conversation on the New Testament, but, but it's, it, lay people may not know, the average person may not know the reason why we have the canonical order of these books, both in the old and new. As a matter of fact, some might be surprised to know that if you read Hebrew, if you picked up a Hebrew Bible, that the Hebrew scriptures are arranged differently than our English translation. So you go, okay, no, that's interesting. Why? But then we're going to spend some time in the New Testament. So, Dr. Still, why are the New Testament books arranged in the way they are? Because you might think, looking at the New Testament, that there's some sort of meta-narrative at work. I mean, it makes some sense, right? Because what do we start with? We start with Matthew's gospel, a genealogy that reaches all the way back to Abraham. All right, that's a great way to start the story of the Christ who's come as the last king of Israel. You have four different accounts of Jesus, and they're very unique and significant in the way they tell the story. Then after John, you've got Acts. Okay, that makes sense. Jesus launches the church. Here, here we go. We're reading the narrative of how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, at least to Rome, and Paul's in prison in Rome. Then here come the letters of Paul. I mean, Acts ends with Paul, so here come his letters, and that kind of makes sense. And then Peter and John, and, and then it ends with the Revelation. So we start with the Alpha, right, Abraham, and we end with Omega and the end of the world. So you might think, oh, that's, that's the reason why the books were ordered and this way. And yet, Paul came after Peter and John, right? In the story, you can see, an, I mean, Peter and John were disciples of the historical Jesus. Paul was a disciple of the resurrected Lord. And you can tell even by Acts that if you think, wait a minute, if they're going to be arranged according to kind of a meta-narrative, shouldn't Peter's and John's letters come before Paul? And then why do we even have the arrangement, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because Luke is the uh, ascribed as the author of Acts. So John almost like interrupts a good two-part volume, right? So... Help us out, Todd. Why are the New Testament books in particular ordered this way? And then speak generally about the order of the biblical canon. Rodney, first of all, I think this is a fascinating topic. It's, um, it's an issue that as I began to study Scripture really gripped me. And I think it's something that maybe... Uh, Christ followers have not thought about as carefully as they could, and uh, certainly as we might. So, as you've spoken, you're right. Uh, the New Testament in particular, and even the sweep of Scripture in general, does have a narrative. Uh, it begins with creation, in the beginning, then fall, but then covenant, 
Then we have Christ, we have church, we have consummation. So taken together on the whole, the sweep of Scripture does make sense. I put it this way, Scripture has a script. It has a narrative. And we're grateful that we can situate ourselves in this stream, and it does make good sense overall. When we begin to peel back some of the layers and look more carefully, we begin to see that the Hebrew Bible, that is to say the Jewish scriptures, are arranged interestingly and as you have flagged, Rodney, differently than our Protestant English translations because the Hebrew Bible uh, has, uh, as we know, 24 books as opposed to 39 books, and they're arranged differently, beginning with Torah, then the prophets, then the writings, and they're counted differently. So we'll just note that, but not linger there. Right. So they have like, we've got two books of Kings, two book yep. of Chronicles, two, but the Hebrew scriptures don't do that. Uh, they even number the Psalms a little differently in certain places. That's a minor point. Uh, and then even the arrangement, like, okay, we start out in the, in the Old Testament, and sure enough, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number of okay, those five books are just like ours, although they're named differently in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's a whole other topic for conversation, right? But then when you get to the second part, the prophets— it's interesting that that section is known as the prophets, and yet you've got Samuel and and kings there, as well as the well-known prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and even even the book. It's called the Book of the Twelve, uh, twelve prophets in one scroll. So, and then the writings, as you are the last part of the Old Testament, right? So that the Hebrew Scriptures end with. Second Chronicles, which is kind of a surprise. You go, wait a minute, how did they come at that? Well, perhaps we'll talk about that some other time. I might ask a, a, our friend Danny Hayes to come and talk about some of that, because we're going to, uh, Dr. Still and I are going to spend some time on the New Testament, but he's pointing out how that our Old Testament, in the way we've arranged it, is different from the Hebrew Scriptures. So help us understand why do we arrange our scriptures this way in the Old Testament? And then let's quickly go to the New. So um, even as the Hebrew Bible, Jewish scriptures, Rodney puts the prophets uh, all together, uh, beginning with the so-called former prophets, then the latter prophets, then, as you have rightly said, the Book of the Twelve. We would call these the minor prophets. So they bundle all of these together, and then the writings are for them uh, the, uh, the third category. Uh, three is a number with which the ancients loved to think. It's uh, a number that Christians love to think with, too. We talk about uh, for example, the, the Trinity, God in three persons. So you have this tripartite division of the Old Testament. Now, for the Christian person who reads both forward and backward, right, it's between two covers. Uh, the Old Testament points towards the new, and as our friend Richard Hayes has rightly said, 
we read backwards uh, so that we might understand more fully that which is in front of us in what we call the New Testament or the New Covenant. We find it meaningful that the last book of the Old Testament, as we understand it, is Malachi. And then you go from Malachi to Matthew, which serves as a suitable segue because Matthew is at pains to show that Jesus is a new Moses, Jesus is a fulfillment. I mean, these 14 citation formulas woven through Matthew. Once again, Matthew is a Hebrew. He uses numbers with which to think. So seven, the number of completion, double seven, we now have 14. And so as we launch out into the New Testament, maybe the first thing we should ask is, why Matthew first? And we have our answer when we begin to see the Old Testament texture mm. and the genealogy, it ranges back to David. Mm. Once again, three sets of 14 in each of the generations. And Some the of genealogy even, of Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Some have even suggested that uh, this has uh, numerical value that is equated to David. So all kinds of ways to see why the... Um, what we would call the framers of the Christian canon did as they did. Matthew was also, we know from Augustine, the most read gospel by the early church. If you have Jesus offering these sections of instruction that we call the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, discourse regarding mission, the discourse uh, that is collected together on instruction and parables, then instruction for the church, then instruction regarding uh, the end times that is preceded by the woes. So you have uh, in Matthew- Five blocks of teaching. Five blocks of teaching. And so this signals Torah. This signals that Matthew is a new Moses, but as Del Allison has rightly helped us understand, as one greater than Moses. And then Matthew must have been a Texan, I say tongue in cheek, because he does this two step uh, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, all the way throughout this remarkable, expansive gospel. Yeah. So if we just kind of quickly leave the Old Testament just for a second, the order of the books, if you could pick up a Greek translation of yep. the Old Testament, you would find a similar order than our our order. So that's pro, that's mostly where order comes from, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But Dr. Still is exactly right. You got four Gospels. All right, why is Matthew first? Uh, you might think, well, it was the first one written. Not necessarily, but it certainly works well to reach back, even the genealogy. It's almost like the genealogy of Jesus is a recital of the story of, his, uh, of Israel in a few verses. And, and as, as Todd has said, so Matthew's gathering the story of Israel and showing how Jesus embodies the story of Israel as Israel's representative to bring about every promise— Matthew stacks it up, doesn't he? And that Jesus is therefore the last king of Israel to make all the promises uh, God made to Abraham and to Israel, make them good through his work and launching of the church. Okay, so 
Now we're in the New Testament. It makes sense for Matthew to be the first. So help us out then. So why do we have the four Gospels um, and then Acts and then the letters of Paul arranged in a particular way? Because you pick up the letters of Paul, you think, oh, Romans was probably the first letters written. No, it's not. It's one of the later letters so that Paul wrote. So it help us understand the canonical order of the New Testament. Yeah, so um, I, I hope, I hope Rodney, that those who listen to this think that this is as fun as we do. I mean, this is actually just uh, an, an utter blast. So um, what I think that I would like to say is at the outset, and then let's unpack it, um, is that the New Testament is not arranged chronologically it's arranged literal, literarily. And now let's, let's try to tease out what that means. So you have a fourfold gospel witness. Matthew uh, is likely not written first. Mark, which comes second, is likely written first. Then you have Luke. Taken together, as uh, this, uh, those listening undoubtedly know, these are called the synoptic gospels. Soon optic, to see along with or to see alongside. And all that means is this, you all. When you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke alongside one another, you are struck by both the similarities on the one hand, but you're also struck by the differences or the divergences, and they stand out, especially when one or the other decides to go his own way. So you have the synoptics holding together. In fact, as Rodney has flagged uh, and alluded to, one would have thought that Luke and Acts would have come together because um, in Acts, um, you know, uh, Luke can say, in my former book, Theophilus. And so you would have thought, well, why separate a perfectly good two-volume work? And as Rodney knows, the, the earliest framers of the New Testament were at a bit of a loss to know what to do because some have actually placed John prior to Luke-Acts, which comes together. But to my mind, it doesn't really matter what I think. Uh, it does matter that uh, we begin to realize that uh, our New Testament did not float down from heaven on golden plates, right? But they actually are uh, thoughtfully and theologically arranged. They chose to go ahead and let John abut to Luke and then separate Luke from Acts. It was um, early, early on, I believe, uh, Ronnie, you'll help me if I'm wrong here. I believe it was Irenaeus who said, John, having perceived the bodily facts, set forth for himself a spiritual gospel. And so that is the reason among others, that John brings in uh, the, 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 the rear of the kind of canonical gospel train, because, you know, as we can play Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. Come on, can you tell which one? <laughs> and, and, and although, Rodney Wright, uh, when folks are, you know, learning about faith, we will often set before them the gospel of John, uh, because of its simplicity, because of its profundity, uh, its clarity regarding the person of Jesus, the Word of God come flesh, 
in some ways, it's interesting that John is really the 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 outlier, a, a, a remarkable outlier. Yes. But but the outlier. Yes. In chronology, in, in the way in which the story unfolds, it's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. Um, so what Dr. Steele is suggesting is, and this is part of the answer to the question, why do we have the canonical or we do? Church tradition. There, there are Christian these Christians that begin to read this literature and recognize this is more than Christian literature. This is the Word of God. It yeah. helps them worship God. It helps them teach what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And this is when the church was still underground before it kind of goes public under Constantine. And as early as Irenaeus, late second century, he can refer to the fourfold gospel axiomatically, like every, and not name them by, you know, but everyone knows, oh, there are four gospels, no more, no less, these four. And John was understood as that kind of crowning work that takes the chronology of the synoptics and go, yeah, well, let's think more about that. And so John's gospel spends so much more time developing characters. We learn a lot more about Thomas, who's barely mentioned in the synoptics. We learn a lot more about private conversations Jesus had with disciples and other figures that barely show up like Nicodemus. So it is so true. John is almost like the the crowning achievement of this fourfold gospel. And, and most scholars think John was probably, well, there's a minority opinion, but most scholars think John was was the last of the four written. And so if church tradition helps us understand why Matthew was first in the canonical order, why John comes along and separates Luke-Acts, church history also, or church tradition also, is the one who gives the titles to these books, right? I mean, yeah. for the most yeah. part, these Gospels are anonymous works. I mean, technically, you yeah. don't get the name of the author embedded in the work. That's right. As Martin Hingle uh, has helped me, I think, more than anyone else to understand, uh, so uh, the the katamarkon, let's just say, according to Mark, uh, this is added uh, later, and we're grateful that church tradition links these gospels to certain figures, and there's all kinds of fun we could have at another time talking about all of that. But let's uh, let's get back to your overall question, Rodney. So you have the gospels, then you have a one-off. You have Acts, which is sometimes talked about as a bridging book. Um, if in Luke, God sends forth his son, in Acts, son, God sends forth his spirit, and Acts helps to explain how the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, the kingdom of God, that is the uh, work of God made manifest in Jesus's person and mission, uh, is actually expanded in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so it bridges between Christ and the church. In fact, any number of letters that Paul will write um, are two places that Paul visits that Acts speaks of. So speaking of Paul, 13 letters are called Pauline letters. Now watch this. Nine letters written to congregations, four letters written to persons, and each grouping is arranged in descending 
order of length, with one exception. Galatians is actually 251 words longer than Ephesians. Wow, I didn't know that, uh, Todd. But Oh, yes, you did. No, I didn't. No, so thank you so much. <laughs> I've heard, I, didn't, I knew Galatians was not as long, but I didn't know the word count. Wow, well, this is what scholars do. Well, uh, this is uh, this is what people uh, who have far too much time on their hands do. So um, you all, but the fascinating thing is this: uh, and David Trobish has wondered aloud, why Romans one and two Corinthians and Galatians, uh, and Trobish offers this fascinating answer. He suggests that this was actually. Um, a mini letter collection that might have been preserved by Paul and circulated by Paul even during the course of his life. That may be a reason that these four letters come first, and it may be uh, uncompelling. But I do think that what's fascinating, Rodney, as you know, and the audience can know, that uh, these are the letters that German scholars in particular, the so-called capital letters, or in the German, the Hauptbriefe, the, these are the ones that, that come first, the so-called leading letters. Now, uh, then everyone uh, remembers how they memorize Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you will go ahead and add the last little Pauline letter, Philemon, with uh, Philippians, Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, you get a, a, a mini collection, another mini collection of four. These are called the captivity letters, I think more precisely, sometimes more broadly called the prison epistles. And then uh, along with these uh, uh, eight, you have early correspondence, perhaps the earliest, perhaps it, not the earliest. There, there is very good reason to think that Galatians might be Paul's earliest letter. There are very strong grounds to believe that First and Second Thessalonians might be Paul's earliest letters. But you have the two letters that Paul sends to the church of the Thessalonians or uh, the church in Thessalonica. This then takes us to the remaining three, uh, one and two Timothy and Titus, known together since 1736 when Paul Anton first called them, quote, the pastoral epistles. As Paul writes to his pastoral envoys, junior colleagues, Timothy and Ephesus on the one hand and Titus and Crete on the other. So watch this. Taken together, you all, we now have the so-called Pauline letter corpus, 9 plus 4, 13. But watch this. Hebrews comes into the New Testament canon on Pauline coattails. That's why you have Hebrews situated where it is. Uh, rightly, uh, through God's providential guidance, Hebrews is in the New Testament, but the framers hadn't the foggiest notion where to put it. So, <laughs> so they slip it, <laughs> they slip it between Paul and the so-called 
Catholic letters are Catholic epistles, which I also find fascinating. So we, we have 21 letters, okay? So 14, watch again, the, the, the seven plus seven attributed to Paul, right? We would say that Paul would have had to have had a lobotomy to have written Hebrews, <laughs> and we can go ahead and side with origin, only God knows. That being said, watch then the seven, which are the witness of the pillar apostles, one and two Peter, right? One, two, and three John, James. So Peter, James, John, called by Paul in Galatians 2, the pillars. And then Jude linked to James as James's brother, half-brothers of Jesus. This is the reason that Jude is connected with the other six letters that comprise the so-called Catholics. Okay, so Dr. Steele's put a lot before us. Let's let me quickly summarize. First notice, as he has suggested, the letters are the second part of the New Testament. So they're arranged according to genre. We've got narrative first, the five books of narrative, four gospels, and then Acts. Then we've got, here comes some letters. And the letters of Paul are arranged according to length for the most part. So Romans is his longest letter. It wasn't the first letter he wrote. And they're arranged according to, you might say, a subdivision, uh, letters to churches, then letters to individuals. So letters to churches, Romans is the longest one. Second Thessalonians is the smallest one to these letters uh, to churches. Then the second division within Paul's corpus are letters to individuals, the longest being First Timothy, then Second Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon, the shortest letter. Now, Hebrews, we'll, I'm going to do Hebrews in a minute, but <clears throat> and talk about you know how it sneaks in. But uh, the Pauline corpus in the early, basically the earliest copy of Paul's letters that we have is P46, and it places Hebrews between Romans and First Corinthians. So, so, so there was some tradition that Paul may have had his hand in that sermon, which is really not a letter; it's an anonymous sermon, and we don't even know who preached it. But I want to go back to this, uh, Doctor Steele. So when we look at the Pauline corpus, you mentioned the fact that there's some evidence that Paul collected the letters himself, kept copies. Yep. And, and we don't have every letter that he wrote, do we? No, no, no. So uh, Rodney and I have a good friend, uh, E. Randolph Richards. We, he, he allows us to call him Randy. Uh, <laughs> he studied with a um, uh, 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 a remarkable scholar that also influenced Rodney and me, uh, Professor Edward Earl Ellis, E. Earl Ellis. And uh, Randy uh, is the world's expert on uh, secretaries uh, as they uh, worked for Paul. We know one of these so-called amanuensis, that's the fancy name for secretary in the ancient world by name, According to Romans 16:24, I, Tertius, write this letter. Now, uh, Tertius was not the author. Paul was the author. He was the writer. And so, Rodney, 
uh, isn't it fascinating that Paul can say to the Colossians, um, now there's a letter coming from Laodicea, which some of us think might well have been Ephesians, a circular letter. Uh, read this letter uh, or have this letter read to you, right? Because Paul can say, I adjure you to the Thessalonians, have this letter read to every one of you because ancients couldn't read. And so there was uh, this manuscript that was read to the congregation. And Paul, not unlike ancient letter writer Cicero, kept seemingly a copy of his correspondence. And so some even have suggested that, uh, that Philemon may have been the person that collated, collected, curated the Pauline letters that leads to the collection that we now have. One of the things that we know to be true, you would have this manuscript, that is, here the originals, you all, that aren't preserved for us. Uh, maybe it's because we would have turned them into bronze serpents and begun to worship them. I don't know why we don't have <laughs> But what we do have, right, Rodney, right. is we have all kinds of copies. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, we are able, according to Bruce Metzger, to arrive at a close proximate to, uh, let me use the word, a very close proximate to that might that which might have been original. And so aren't we grateful that copies were uh, in circulation from the beginning? And aren't we grateful that churches wanted very much to have their own copy of these letters? And that led to uh, a wonderful cottage industry in earliest Christianity, that is the work of scribes. And as you and I know, we can be grateful that the work of the scribes ultimately was collected, collated, and as Harry Gamble has rightly argued, Christians were the inventors of books mm. because you stack these copies on top of one another, and this leads to something that can be bound and not un unfurled like a scroll, but opened and read as we do our books. And you know, it just occurs to me, <clears throat> thinking about this, when you compare the new with the old, there's some similarities, right, in genre. <clears throat> You've got narrative, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got <clears throat> um, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature like the Revelation of John. But the one thing you don't have in the Old Testament are books that are letters. Now, there are some letters that are embedded in the books yeah. of the Old Testament, yeah. but yeah. isn't it fascinating? Isn't it fa well, that a, a good portion of our New Testament, a third of it com is comprised of this epistolary form? It, yeah. it And so why? What is it about Christians? Why is it that we... You know, why is it that Paul wrote letters and why does Peter and John, why are they writing letters and why do we see them as so important for us today? And I guess what I'm getting at is what makes Christianity a little different, you might say, from Judaism in that we have these, you know, much of our New Testament is comprised of a genre that doesn't even exist in the Hebrew scriptures. I know yeah. there's all kinds of opinions about that. What do you think, Todd? Yeah. So, you know, Rodney, you're exactly right. I mean, for example, in Jeremiah, a letter is embedded. Uh, but um, 
to my mind, uh, you know, for, for my money, um, I think that Helmut Kester is right. Paul is the inventor of a new genre known as the pastoral letter. Paul wrote in letters, this then leads other, watch this, you all, apostles, apostles, uh, those commissioned by the risen Jesus, one sent, one set apart. So apostles write epistles. Epistles aren't the the, the wives of apostles, okay? Right? Epistles, are, <laughs> right? epistles are letters. And here's what happens, you all. So why does Paul write? Because he can't get there. Right. So the and where is there? And where is there? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Because so, you've got this religion that just exploded. The centrifugal exploded. force of the Jesus movement just yeah. exploded like ripples yeah. in a pond. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. and part and because Paul, Paul takes this gospel on yeah. the road. Christ yeah. told him to do so. Take it to the Gentiles. Where are the Gentiles? Well, they're everywhere. So here he goes, <laughs> right, heading west. And yeah. he starts these little Jesus communities, churches, yeah. and he wants to kind of continue to shepherd them, to pastor them. And so the right. letters are aptly described. Todd's right. They're very pastoral. We think he's laying down a bunch of theology. Well, theology's there. It undergirds his advice. But he's trying to help these churches learn what it means to embody Christ to the world. Yeah. And— we're still reading their mail. Isn't that something? <laughs> we're, we're reading over their shoulders. So on the one hand, Rodney, of course, Paul's not writing uh, a column. I mean, he's not an ancient dear Abbey. Uh, he knows that he is writing substantive, significant correspondence and communication. And aren't we grateful that our forebears in the faith had the spiritual common sense to preserve these, knowing that, uh, as Paul could say uh, to the Corinthians, uh, that which was written of old was written for our instruction. Oh, By good. way of extension, we say that's good. this is written for our instruction. And uh, so these become authoritative for matters of faith and practice. And people say, yeah, but they're decidedly contextual. It's almost they're like the advice that Paul's giving, a timely word, so a yep. certain situation <clears throat> has a timeless quality for Christians yep. living in different contexts over the centuries and even to today. So we go, you know what? We know God was using Paul to give a word to the Corinthians. <clears throat> but <clears throat> isn't it amazing that that word that he gave them is still a word that helps us because we identify, right, with the problems. We identify with the human condition. We identify <laughs> with the challenge of what it means to embody Christ for the world to be the church. Yeah, and just coming out of Easter as we have, uh, let's once again take your illustration of 1 Corinthians, Rodney. Um, Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I, I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, was raised according to the Scriptures. And he teaches this in this remarkably expansive chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. How more relevant can something Boy, be? that's exactly right. 
And so we're, we're grateful for Paul's witness in these letters to ultimately uh, Jesus Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, returning, and our challenge, this is the reason that you and I in some ways live and move and have our being. Our challenge is to take a first century text and to bring it into a 21st century uh, context because we know that a text without a context is a pretext, this is our friend Ben Witherington, for whatever we want it to mean. <laughs> so we situate it, but then we realize that it doesn't stop there. And we'll move to Revelation because I know that time is short. And here's the thing. Many people read Revelation as if though it is cut off from context. Right. This is what I would call a categorical mm -hmm. error. You have the seven churches of the apocalypse, Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Sardis, Philad uh, Pergamum, Laodicea. Uh, and this uh, unveiling was written to these congregations regarding how is it that you negotiate the nettle when Rome rules the roots? Yeah, it's a word for them. Just it's like Corinthians a was a word for them. Thank you. So, I mean... Um, who else could have imagined, except 21st century Westerners, that Revelation was first written to us? <laughs> it's, it's not written to us. It's written for us. Very well. Very good. Well and, done. Well and, done, and, Dr. Still. And yeah. then when we begin to see this, <clears throat> Revelation comes alive, and it makes all kinds of sense, Rodney, that this would have been placed at the end of not only the New Testament, but of the entire uh, Christian canon, because the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He shall reign forever and ever, drying every tear from our eyes, setting things to right. Genesis, Genesis starts with a, a garden. Revelation ends with a garden, and everything in between is the work of God uh, for the sake of all of his, all humanity, right? Made in the image of God through Christ Jesus. Boy, uh, Todd, there is so much more we could talk about. I was, we, we were out of time, but I was going to even throw in, you know, I, was, I, I told Dr. Steele before we started, what if we talk, what if we say, well, if we were to put the New Testament in its literary uh, execution, as far as when it was written chronologically, boy, that would be a completely different order, wouldn't it? I mean, just briefly, we would probably have like the letters of Paul or James among the earliest, right? And then among the latter books that were written were the Gospels, not to mention the Revelation. Um, and so how about this, Dr. Steele? Could we have you back sometime in the future? I'd love it. And so we, we might pick up with that and then talk more intently about some of your work in Paul, some of your work in his uh, teaching in to the Thessalonians, and uh, and because we have so much to learn, <laughs> there's we, so much here. <laughs> we we all have so much to learn. It reminds me, Rodney. Maybe I can conclude my part with this. Um, the the Scottish interpreter who taught at the University of Glasgow at the end of the 1800s, his name was A. B. Bruce, Alexander Balmain Bruce. Uh, he wrote many things, including uh, the uh, a, a very 
interesting and important volume about the 12 disciples. As Bruce would begin his day, he would put before himself a scrap of paper, the initials of which meant, uh, Lord, you have much light yet to shed on and from your holy word. The beautiful thing about the Bible is it's utterly uh, inexhaustible, mm -hmm. and um, it, it requires the diligence and devotion that you bring to it uh, day after day, week after week, and it's a joy to be able to visit with you. Well, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Steele. What you didn't know about the Bible, it's like the more you learn what you didn't know, the more you need to learn. And of course, for us, this is more than a collection a compendium of world literature. We believe this is the very Word of God, and uh, that's why it is alive and sharp, uh, even as a sword today. Thank you, Todd, so much. Thank you, Rodney.